Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> I can keep going. Thank you, Sam. How cool was that? If you are new to Genesis, maybe you didn't know that Sam could do that. But if you've been here a while, then you're happy to see him back. Um, and glad you're back. Not just leading worship, but glad you're back and healthy. Um, don't know. Usually Jordan's here doing announcements, but I don't think we have anything going on this week per se. But um, just in general... Uh, we do this every Sunday, so if you're watching on YouTube and uh, you're joining us live, or maybe you're going to see it during the week, Sunday morning, live, streaming, every week at 10 a.m. And um, also, you guys know this, but uh, we are here because of your support, and so if you are looking for a way to support Genesis, there are some, uh, there are some ways, the easiest ways is to go to the genesisstory.com. And uh, you can give online, or there's an address there if you'd rather uh, mail in a check. You can do that as well. Uh, The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the series called Jesus in 3D. Um, Jesus in 3D. And the idea isn't that we're taking a text and really kind of digging into it, studying it for its deeper, richer meaning. Um. But we're looking at the text in the Gospels about Jesus, and we're looking to discover more about his personality, who he is. Because we've maybe spent a lot of time reading the scriptures in the Gospels and learning about Jesus without ever learning how to experience Jesus. And so that's the idea. When we stand back, when we're not consumed with figuring out what this text means for us, and we can relax and read it with a different question at heart, who is this Jesus? What do I see about him, his character, his personality? And how does that help me relate with him more and draw closer to him? It can be very easy to read a very 2D, two-dimensional Jesus in the scriptures who is very stiff and maybe even dreadfully serious if we just read it a certain way. So, The last couple of weeks, we looked at the humor of Jesus, and last week, we looked at the humanity of Jesus. And today, when we talk about Jesus in 3D, there's so much that we could talk about. There is his generosity, starting with how he turned water into wine in his very first miracle, and the the very best wine came late in the ceremony. 
We could talk about his generosity of love, his generosity of life. Or we could talk about his sharp intentionality. Because even though he had a playful side that we saw a couple of weeks ago, that playful side was never a distraction from his life of intentionality. And we catch a glimpse of, a glimpse of this when we see him driving out the money changers out of the temple. Jesus came with the intention of bridging the gap between God and man. And so in that temple, when he saw people putting up a barrier between God and man, he was upset. And so we see the side of Jesus, right? It wasn't just always serious. It was sometimes funny, and it was sometimes angry. And he has a personality, much like you do, or I do. We could talk about how free he was, how cunning he was, how real, how true, how beautiful he was. But since we've covered the humor and the humanity of Jesus, I thought we should stick with an H letter today, an H word. So we're going to look at the humility of Jesus. Humility is a hard thing to talk about. It's a hard thing to teach about because I really don't know anything about it. I mean, my parents never really taught me how to be humble or modest. It just came naturally. <laughs> There's a scripture, I've mentioned this before, in, in Numbers 12. Numbers 12, verse 3, where it says, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. You know who wrote that? Moses. <laughs> Maybe. In a world that values wealth and power, in a world where an apology is seen as a sign of weakness, admitting wrongdoing will get you canceled, humility is a foreign concept. In our culture, while humility might still be seen as a noble character, characteristic, isn't something we really look for in our leadership, in government, and even in the church. We're not looking for Mother Teresa's these days. We're looking for celebrity pastors or best-selling book authors. It's no wonder those who are rich or proud or powerful found it so entirely difficult to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus. Humility is a strange thing. And the juxtaposition between humility and pride is even weirder, I think, in our culture. But when you look at things like social media in your own news feed, or when you have conversations with people, or you watch the, the nightly news, or whatever it might be, you get the sense that humility might be the number one thing that we're lacking in our, in our time. It might be the most important thing that we need as a people. But how do we cultivate it? Scientists distrust any kind of uh, report, self-report self on humility, and for good reason, because you probably wouldn't want to buy a book that says, it was called, How I Became as Humble as Moses. Good morning. But there was some research done at Baylor University, and they took an interesting approach on this subject. And 
the researchers compared people's perceptions of themselves with their perceptions of other people, assuming that most people would have a self-serving bias. Rowat studies, it's called. Participants, they were students at Baylor University, and they, were, they estimated the, deg uh, the degree to which they would adhere to the Ten Commandments. So they're, they're, they're testing a sample group of students, and they're saying, how close are you keeping these Ten Commandments? How closely are you following the Ten Commandments? And of course they found out that most students thought that they were following the Ten Commandments better than everybody else. Right? They thought they were doing, they were living more righteously than everybody, all the other students at Baylor. The less they saw themselves as better than others, the higher their humility rating on this, on this research scale went. But they weren't necessarily more humble Maybe some people actually did follow the, the commandments better than others. Maybe not. They were just, this is their behavior. We see ourselves as, this, the study of the research shows, most people see themselves as more humble than other people. So we have this whole sense of how we identify humility in people. So what about Jesus? What about Jesus, and where do we see humility in him? I mean, we know he's humble. We've heard that. Let's start with Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. It says, this is Paul writing, he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross. See, we know this. We know Jesus humbled himself. Paul says here that he set aside his deity to become human, which is completely humble in ways that we can't even, it's, it's like saying, I'm not going to be human for a while. I'm going to go be a goldfish and swim in this tank that's kind of dirty and eat fish flakes. And it changes everything because here is the incarnation, right? The creator entering creation, the storyteller entering the story, the poet becoming the poem for the sake of other people. It is beautiful. And we could spend all day going through examples of just what exactly the incarnation means, about how the inventor of language would have to learn how to speak as a baby, how the visionary God entered the world with blurry eyes, the maker of the intricate human body and all the wisdom it takes to create systems of biology was now a baby making poopy diapers. It's humble. The sustainer of life would become dependent on a teenage girl for sustenance. The incarnation is no joke. It's powerful and it's incredibly humble and it's incredibly humbling when we grasp at it. 
But beyond these big statements about Jesus setting aside his deity to become human, I want to see how this shows up in his humanity. Don't you? So we understand. We, we might not understand what it means for God to humble himself into humanity. We could, we could think about that all day. But we can't really relate to it. But Jesus as a human, we can relate to that. So let's think about this a little bit today. I, I've always thought that if I were God, <laughs> that's already funny. What is it in God's plan that he picked the ancient Near East at the turn of the century? At that time, I mean, Jesus was born at a hard time. And if I were God, I would have waited until there were cars and air conditioning. That's just me. Maybe cheeseburgers. But think about this the next time you're you're reading through the Gospels because this is so, there's so many verses that I wouldn't even list them all. But you hear Jesus walked everywhere. Jesus walked everywhere. And you might be going, yeah, duh. He didn't have a car. Didn't have a chariot. He rode a donkey once. <clears throat> he rode boats sometimes. But he walked everywhere. And this is also no joke Capernaum to Jerusalem is a 40-mile trek. Galilee to Jerusalem is 80 miles. The Gospels always make these kinds of statements, and we gloss right over it, never thinking that this is a four-day trek. From sunup to sundown, he's walking. Four days in a row here, six days in a row there, whatever it might be. Matthew 15, 21, for example. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. No big deal. It's one little verse in the, in the scriptures. We read them all the time. We gloss right over them, and we think, whatever. Not realizing that this is a 20-hour nonstop walk each way through rug, rugged mountainous terrain to walk from Capernaum where he was to Sidon. 20 hours of walking. And then just a few verses later in Matthew 15, 29, Jesus left there and went along to the Sea of Galilee. It's a 53-mile hike. We don't think about that very often. And then it says he went up on a mountainside and sat down. <laughs> of course he sat down. He was tired. <laughs> it always makes me think of that scene in Forrest Gump when he just stopped running. After years of running. And he's just like, Think I'll stop running now? <laughs> Jesus walked a lot. And why? Why is this important? Why are we talking about him walking all over the place? Because Jesus set aside his deity. The God who is in all places at all times now had to spend days and hours walking from place to place. In flesh. In sandals. They didn't, he didn't even wait for Nike to come around. 
unpaved roads through the desert. And why? Most, most rabbis, most teachers, they didn't travel like this. They stayed in one singular place and their disciples came to them. But Jesus didn't do it that. He didn't do it that way. Imagine being setting aside your deity and walking everywhere. Matthew 3 tells us about the story, the ministry of John the Baptist. It tells us that people from all over Jordan were coming to hear him preach and to be baptized by John the Baptizer. It also tells us about his weird clothes and eating habits, which that's not really important for us this morning. The baptism of Jesus. It says in the scriptures, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. It's a beautiful story. Imagine the scene. Imagine you're there. You're lakeside. And there are people everywhere in line to get baptized. Picture in and out without any cars. Jesus, the King of Kings, he's in line too. Most people don't know who he is. At this point, nobody really knew. But John sees him coming. And he says, oh no, no, no. This, this isn't going to happen like this. I'm the one that needs to be baptized by you. But Jesus, in his humility, he says, this is the way. The message translation says it like this. It says, Jesus said to John, do it. <laughs> do it. God's work, putting things right, all these centuries is coming together right now in this baptism. And so John did it. It's such a beautiful story. Jesus, the God-man, came to John the Baptist, who's kind of this outlaw, right? John, who Jesus would later say, there's nobody better than John in history. Jesus loved him, and John was preparing the way for Jesus. But in this story, we see this, we see this humility. Jesus, the God-man. Jesus, the the one in essence with the Father, comes to John and says, baptize me. I want to be identified with this movement. And that's what he was saying. John tells us that the next time John the Baptist saw Jesus, he told his own disciples about what he had witnessed. That the Spirit, like a dove, came down and rested upon Jesus and he said, this is the Son of God, he testified. And then some of 
his disciples would follow Jesus. The scriptures say the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. I love the simplicity in this. I love the humility in this. Because Jesus sees these guys following him. And Jesus says, what do you want? (laughs) Where are you staying? I wonder if that's really the question they wanted to ask. Or maybe have you ever like ran into a celebrity and didn't know what to say, so you said something silly? <laughs> I've done that. But I wonder if this was the real question. What, where, where are you staying? Or they just didn't know what to say when he, when he asked them. Anyways, he didn't say, I'm you know, staying under the bridge or over there or whatever. He says, Come, come and you will see. Come on, follow me. And I think he says the same thing to us today. This Jesus, this, this God-man, this personality of playfulness and humanness, with all of that together, with all the emotions of being a human, with all the curiosity of being human. Jesus, what are you doing? Why is the world so unfair? Why is there so much division right now? Why is there so much hatred? And Jesus is like, come follow me. Come follow me. And we should note that from here on out, one of the biggest testimonies of Jesus' humility is that this story, his story, doesn't just become about him anymore. It becomes about the 12, too. He lets them in, and he shares the limelight, and you will find no other deity that men have studied where that is true. But Jesus brings them into the story, the story in the Gospels. It's still, he is the center of the story, but the story broadens, and... Jesus isn't so proud that he does not include us in his story of redemption because in his humility, he says to the Father, I have given them the glory that you have given me. And then later on the night that he was betrayed in this unreal scene in which Jesus knows what's coming. He knows how this night is going to end. He knows where it's leading even now. But he has dinner planned. It's the Passover feast, and he loves his friends. I I, want to keep coming back to that because, yeah, God loves us. But Jesus, in his humanity, loved his friends like you love your friends. And so this night was very important to, to him. And imagine the 13 of them feasting and laughing, laughing and celebrating 
And then Jesus, maybe a little more solemn than usual, gets up. He grabs a water basin. He takes off his robe and he puts on an apron like a servant. Then as they're all laying around, lounging around the table, as it were, he starts washing their feet. Have you ever had someone wash your feet? Maybe you've been, maybe you've had a pedicure or a foot massage. And that's, it's <laughs> a little weird. But how much weirder is it when it is the creator of life who is washing your feet? How much, what a strange thing, so strange that Peter was like, no, <laughs> no, kind of like John the Baptist. No, you will not wash my stinky feet. <laughs> By now, they'd spent three years under his teaching, three years of being called, O ye of little faith, right? The three years of witnessing the most incredible man live, the most extraordinary life. He was their teacher, he was their master, and he was their friend. And he was also the Lord of all. Now again, these guys walk a lot. Their feet are dirty. They didn't have sidewalks. They didn't have Nikes calluses and corns and dry sweat and all that unpleasant stuff that you don't want to think about. This wasn't pleasant for any of them. But then it says he washes their feet, even Judas's. And then he gets up, he gets dressed, and he goes back to the table. In John 13, verses 12 through 17, he said, Do you understand what I have done to you? You address me as teacher and master, and rightly so. That is what I am. So if I, the master and teacher, wash your feet, you must now wash each other's feet. I've laid down a pattern for you. What I've done, you do. I'm only pointing out the obvious. A servant is not ranked above their master. An employee does not give orders to the employer. If you understand what I'm telling you, act like it and live a blessed life. Now, so many people have read this scripture and they come away going, we need to have a foot washing ceremony or a service. And that's the the churchy response, I guess. But we don't need foot washing services. We don't need to make it a sacrament. It's easy to miss the point because we don't do foot washing in our culture because we have plumbing, which I would have also waited to come tell there was plumbing if I was God, but that's beside the point. But the point was really this act of humility, this act of servanthood to say, you know who I am. I'm your teacher, I'm your master, but I'm not above serving you. And you're not above serving anybody. So what you've seen me do, you do. With great humility, with great care, no matter how gross it is or how uncomfortable it might make you, we serve. 
because Jesus serves. This is how we relate. This is how we see Jesus and humanity doing these things, offering his humility, his humble approach to living. And this is where we can see ourselves in the story. How can we do this in our time? How can we wash, quote, wash people's feet or each other's feet? It's worthy of some thought. Let's look at just one more passage today. You remember where the Bible tells us that God never sleeps nor slumbers. Psalm 12, um, I think it's 121. But he did rest on the seventh day, didn't he? (laughs) Jesus set aside his deity, and Jesus slept. And we know he slept, and sometimes he slept really hard because he wouldn't even wake up in the stern of that boat when there was a big storm outside. So it shouldn't surprise us, then, when he offers rest for our souls. In fact, that sounds a little heavenly. But in Matthew 11, Jesus gets, he gets a little fired up. Because John the Baptist is in jail at this point. And John the Baptist sends a messenger to Jesus to ask him, are you the one or are we still waiting? It's an interesting. I mean, John's suffered a lot at this point. He's been through a lot. And he's put all his all his fortune in in this basket that Jesus is the one and now he's in jail and he's he's like I just want to make sure I'm suffering (laughs) if I'm going to go through with this I want to make sure you are the one and Jesus says go back and tell John what's going on he tells the messenger the blind see the lame walk lepers are cleansed the deaf hear the dead are raised The wretched of the earth learn that God is on their side. And he goes on, and he's somewhat exasperated that so many people don't see what is so clear to him, what is clearly going on in front of their eyes, and he prays, and he thanks the Father for the way he works, revealing truths to ordinary, humble people. And then you see this change in Jesus' demeanor, because he kind of gets a little annoyed and exasperated, and then he says this prayer. And then he, he changes from being frustrated to being empathetic. And listen to these words. They might be for you today. Matthew 11, starting in verse 28. This is the message translation. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me and get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, he says, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Wow. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out? Maybe tired of feeling like a failed Christian? Jesus says, come to me and learn my ways. He says, in NIV, he says, I am gentle 
and humble. I am gentle and humble. And you will find rest for your souls. If anybody else was to say, I am gentle and humble, I would think, I don't know about that. But when Jesus says it, with a life and a testimony to back that up, I'm shook. I want to learn these ways. This idea in the scripture is the same passage, right? The yoke. The yoke is a is essentially a wooden harness that was used to connect oxen to a plow or a work animal to a plow or cart. Typically, they were made for two animals. So there's two places where you would put this thing over the animal's necks. And he's saying, be yoked with me, right? What you may not know is that the yoke was an important symbol used by rabbis of the time to teach the importance of servitude. Often comparing the yoke of heaven to the yoke of the world. Sounds familiar. One prominent rabbi of the time made this statement. Whoever takes upon himself the yoke of the Torah, they remove, uh, they remove from him the yoke of government and the yoke of worldly concerns. And whoever breaks off the yoke of the Torah, they place on him the yoke of government and the yoke of worldly concerns. So if the common Jew at the time sat under this teaching, they thought there's two ways. There's two ways. I'm yoked with the, the Torah, which is Jewish law, or I'm yoked with the world, the worldly concerns. It's a life of religion or a life of government. And sadly, people still believe this. But Jesus comes here with a third way, a different yoke altogether, an easy one. And he says in verse 30, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm looking at his personality. I'm looking for his character in Matthew 11. First he's calm, then he's frustrated, then he's exasperated, and then he's touched. You see this mood swing. He's human. These people, they're so slow to understand, so entrenched in their old ways that they can't even see what is right before them. A man without a title. A man without a home. A man without wealth, earthly wealth. A man who is lowly and meek and self-proclaiming to be gentle and humble. And yet, he is exactly who they need. He's exactly who I need. He's exactly who we need. And when I find myself missing the point or toiling so hard on my own, or I just feel like I'm done, I can't do this anymore. And I'm that way often. I need to hear Jesus. I need to hear him say these words. I need to see him in his humor and his humanity and in his humility call out and say, hey, you, <laughs> hey, you, I got room for one more in this neck and this yoke. I got one room for one more neck in this yoke. And it's all yours if you're ready. 
Come walk with me. Come live my way. Because it's a lot easier than what you think. And it's a lot easier than what you're doing by yourself. And if any other man claims this humility, if there's any other person who deserves to say that they're humble, it is the man who stepped down and laid his deity aside and became human and a baby. That's humility. The man who would wash the feet of his followers. That's humility. A man who went symbolically to be baptized by his forerunner. That's humility. And even in this, when Jesus is saying, look, you've been, you've been sold this bill of goods that you have to live these religious laws and this life of burden, or this one. But he's saying, come with me. Be yoked with me. I'm doing the work. It's easy with me. We make it so hard. But it's easier than what we're used to. And Jesus says, I am gentle. I am humble. And you will find rest for your souls. Nobody else gets to say they're that humble. <laughs> but in our humanity, we recognize his humanity, his humility and his humanity. And that we relate to. That we can relate to. And that we can strive for. And that's the life that Jesus offers. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word that is filled with rich and deeper meanings. And thank you for your word that we can find and we can find the personality of Jesus when we're not afraid to look for them. And so I pray, Lord, as we see him in a more three-dimensional form, that he's playful. And sometimes he's angry and sometimes he's frustrated and sometimes he's empathetic and sometimes he's compassionate and he's all of these things, just like humans. That he has good days and bad days. That he weeps, that he laughs. He has emotions like we do. I pray, Lord, that that would help us to cling to him even closer when we're going through it when life is hard, when life is great, that we know we have a high priest who identifies with all of this, all of this that's doing inside, all of our emotions, all of our tangledness. And he sees us and he offers rest to each one of us. Help us to follow him more closely. Help us to know him more deeply. And Father, would you be glorified as we end the service in his name. Amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.